Here we go. This is Blue 42. We're going to go red, right, tight, close, sprint, left, G, U, corner, half back, flat, on two. Ready, right. Now here's your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Blue 42. Blue 42. Good morning, Brock. How are you now? Good morning, Polly. Doing well. That's some high energy right there. Did the professor bring that this morning, too? Uh, he did. Listen, Good. Brock, this is the first time I think I've ever cared about the All-Star game and been mad about it in any way, shape, or form. Like, I didn't care when they tied. I, I used to enjoy it. I used to have a sleepover every single night with my best friend, Mark. Growing up, we watched every single All-Star game for the longest time, and I never had an issue with any of the bad outcomes, especially that tie one. But this, that Yusuke Kikuchi is opting out, essentially, from this game, and that the Mariners are not going to have one representative because Kevin Cash decided to give a couple of the alternatives to two players on the race who are worse than both Kendall Graveman and J.P. Crawford. That is outrageous and un-American. Pretty irritating, pretty irritating. <laughs> but but as Salk would say, uh, and I'm going to take my little podcast with him later, and I'm sure he's going to say, good, good, keep that chip right on the Mariners' shoulders. Keep that huge chip right on J.P. Crawford's shoulder. Uh, years ago, before you got here, Paul Gallant, we uh, we had uh, like a whole oh a whole campaign to uh, to get a little infielder into the All Star game, and everybody just went crazy about it, and it was a big deal, and shows made a big deal of it. Was it Segura? Yeah, that's Gene Segura. And then, you know, after he got in, guess what happened? <laughs> the whole second half of the season. So we got a little, we got some some scars. We got some war wounds. Uh, trying to get somebody in, fight to get somebody in, and then watch the thing totally come off the track. So I think there's going to be a fair amount of the audience that say, great, keep doubting those Mariners. Keep putting that keep putting that chip right on JP's shoulder, even if he is way more deserving than the picks that Mr. Cash had to make. See, this is this is why we have you on, because you can find the positive in this. This is good. Thank you, Brock. I like it. I try, Paulie. I try. I'll get worked up about this again in 30 minutes, but right now I've been talked off of that cliff. ESPN put together a top quarterback rankings list, Brock, and, you know, at the top, the usual suspects, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers. I'm a little surprised that Tom Brady's number three over four, Russell Wilson. He's over Josh Allen, by the way, mm. who is fifth. I was surprised that Matt Stafford was as high as sixth. I feel like that's a little bit too high for him, given that we have yet to see him playing with the Sean McVay Los Angeles Rams offense. That feels real high, doesn't it? Yes. And and in, that's probably just a re, is that a when we get into list season, Mister Galan, you got to give me some context. Is this a is this a projection to twenty twenty one or is this a reaction to twenty twenty? So this list is basically just one about today's. Elite quarterbacks. Voters gave their best 10 to 15 players at a position. The results were compiled and ranked based on the number of top 10 votes with 50 league executives. Basically, it just sounds like who are the top 10 quarterbacks? Who are the best players at that position? Who is the best today specifically? So no Lamar Jackson, huh? Lamar Jackson, eighth on this list. Dak Prescott, seven. To round it out, Justin Herbert is nine. And Kyler Murray, 10. Wowzers. That's a lot of young that's a lot of young guys. No Ben mm. Roethlisberger, no Matt Ryan. No. We're kind of seeing the that movement, right? We saw it a year ago and, and Eli Manning and now no Phillip Rivers and you know, we're seeing a we're seeing a significant transition with, with these young players and yet there remains Aaron Rodgers, obviously, there remains Russell Wilson, a decade into this league. Right near the top of the list, and obviously the GOAT at twenty years. I think that's more of a 
a reflection of the playoff run, of, of running through as a wild card, of, of playing some of his best football in the second half of the season, this being Brady, and and ultimately through those playoffs and, and doing enough to, to win another Super Bowl. And so I... I I get it. So this season, people get up in arms a little bit. I mean, if you're taking a quarterback for the next five years, next ten years, you're not taking Tom Brady over Russell Wilson. But my goodness gracious, it's really difficult to uh, to nitpick that guy's resume and what he meant to that organization and to Bruce Arians and for for that area down in South Florida. That area in South Florida, by the way, Brock, having a time. They dented the Stanley Cup. Oh, I was curious about that. Did they really? <laughs> they did. I heard there was scuba gear. Did you see the tweet from like the Tampa, the Tampa Bay Police Department, I Fire did. Department, that before the parade they were ready to go, that they would have their scuba divers if they wanted. Did they try to throw Lord Stanley yesterday? That would be really hard to throw Lord Stanley. I'm assuming that it was dropped. <sighs> Because that is not a very throwable object, right, Brock? Like, I don't know. I mean, the Super Bowl trophy is one thing where you can do that underhanded like we saw Tom Brady tossing it from one boat to another, even though his daughter was saying, no, daddy. But this is a much more difficult thing to throw yes. around. You're yes. a quarterback, though. I mean, how would you throw yeah. the Stanley Cup if you could? Yeah, I mean, you're heaving and hoeing it, right? I mean, it's a <laughs> heave-ho. You're getting your legs into it. It's a it's an underhand like Opie and uh, Hoosiers or whatever his name was. <laughs> uh, you're probably doing that deal. But the thing about the Lombardi, and I was listening to somebody talk about this the other day on, on some national shows as far as you know, Tampa Police and Scuba and everything else. The thing that, that I reflect back on the Lombardi was not that it was going to fall in the water. That thing has edges, Galant. Ooh. Like I, I Yeah, was, on the bottom of it. Yeah, oh you're right. Oh my gosh. I was fearful we're gonna see some slicing and dicing with, you know, the distance that, that traveled. You catch that thing wrong and split open <laughs> your your hand. Maybe I'm a parent, but yeah, that's actually where my mind went when that toss went. I wasn't that it was gonna go in the water. It was on the receiving ends where you're gonna be able to catch that thing clean and not hurt yourself and well, Gronk did. When I got my boater's permit, too, I learned that if you've consumed alcohol while on a boat, you are three times as uh, lively, if you will, as you would be if you were on land. Oh. So these are the things you got to consider when you're tossing around trophies with very sharp edges. No question. Question two. Derek Carr has been the subject of many stories based on his quotes this offseason. He had this to say about last year with his Las Vegas Raiders. We were three or four plays away from having 12 or 11 wins. I guess we could go back to that game against the Miami Dolphins. And, yeah, that's probably that's probably true with the way that that one ended. But how many plays away do you think the Seahawks were from, one, home field advantage, and, two, missing the playoffs, given all the close games they played in last year? Yeah, I mean, that that's... That's the NFL, bro. Like uh, to me, that 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 holds no weight whatsoever. Welcome, welcome to the NFL and a story that a dozen teams could write last year. That man, this play here. Hey, how about just simply the playoff game against the Rams? If you don't run a screen pass that they jump and, and pick six it, and you don't fumble and uh, you actually take the ball away a couple times defensively and, and on those sacks of golf or on those tip balls. If if they could be a sack fumble, if it could be a tipped interception, and and all of a sudden you score defensively and, and you set things up special teams I mean there were obviously the Rams dominated the line of scrimmage in that game uh, run for over 100 yards hit harass sack Russell throughout but you could pinpoint and say yeah there were still three four plays in that game you take those away but man that's just such a false narrative to me Paul because as you watch the NFL as I got a chance last year to broadcast it that that's that's the game that that's the difference that's winning and losing in, in the NFL 
you know, they're all one possession games. What was the number last year? I think it was a pretty historic rate. I want to want to say roughly 65% of the games in the outcomes are, are one possession outcomes, Some, something absurd like that. And if it's not that exact number, I know it's close to it. So, yeah, I'm just – I would not put any weight in that. That's that's the game, Mr. Carr. That's the game, Mr. Gruden. You guys know that. You've been in it. And that's the difference between winning and losing in the NFL, that fine line of a couple plays and typically one possession in the fourth quarter. Do you believe in the idea, and I know that a lot of the analytical people will bring this up, that if you play in a lot of close games that you will come back to earth? I believe it's called the regression to the mean. Bill Barnwell's been a big proponent of that. See it a little bit talked about in baseball, especially with the Mariners this year with their run differential. In football, it's obviously a little bit different. But when you win, I guess, a lot of close games one year, is your expectation that the next season you won't be so lucky? Well, that's been the Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll story for a decade. I mean, that's that's what they've done. I think everybody's waited for that shoe to the other shoe to drop, and and you regress back to that mean. I think that happens a lot more. Phil Steele, I don't know how much you read him, Paul, or, or his Bible every year in college football, but he has surprise teams and and teams from one year to the next. He expects to make the biggest jump, and I think that's usually it. It's takeaways, right? Those teams that have an absurd amount of takeaways in any given year. We know that that is not a, a trend that, that continues. We saw that here in Seattle in the Super Bowl year, Super Bowl winning year, 39 takeaways. have not gotten close to that since. So I think takeaways, and, and if you're huge in that turnover differential and you've just got a, a, a waterfall of takeaways, I'd be careful to count on that from a consistent standpoint. But one possession games, fourth quarter games, close games, that's number three's territory. And it's not been one year or two years. It's been ten years. And his record in those speaks for itself. And I think everyone waiting for for him and Pete and that style to regress to the mean. And all they do is win double digits and get to the playoffs and win the division more times than not. Question number three, Brock. Jerry Rice had this to say about 49ers wide receiver Brandon Ayuk. He can do it all. He will be better in his second year. Which offensive skill player, so we're talking about running backs, wide receivers, tight ends, is going to be the biggest problem for the Seahawks defense in the NFC West this coming season? I will say that at least based off of 2019, Brock, Debo Samuel was the guy who scared me the most. And if you took a look at his statistical output in 2019 against the Seahawks in his rookie year, it was pretty ridiculous. But, of course, he had all those uh, injuries that he dealt with last year. Who would you say is the biggest problem for Seattle this coming season? Yeah, I think it's Ayuk. Out of uh, he was an Arizona State guy, right? Could mm-hmm. find out run, and I know why Rice loves him because he's effortless in his with his size and length and his in his motion and his and his cutting ability and in and out and everything else. So I think there are a lot of physical traits to like, but I'm going to land back on the guy that that you took in this division, man. George Kittle, when healthy, is an absolute monster for this defense to stop. Uh, what he's able to do with his size and his speed and his strength, and you know when he has a capable quarterback throwing it to him and doesn't overthrow him or miss him, and just you know stylistically, when you are a single high team, you know you you do that and you play that kind of style. Single high being that that one safety, you know that's what Pete's always largely been in his career. Been a little bit more mixed the last couple years, you know, with different personnel and the strength of different guys, and certainly Jamal Adams is is going to be you know probably better protected in a, in a two-deep system or a quarter system where you can come up and, and hammer rather than have to cover a ton of ground. But the basis and the essence of, of Pete's and Ken Norton's philosophy is to play single high. And when you do, 
you know, and for 10 years we've watched tight ends against this team have field days. And, yeah, George Kittle to me is still the single scariest skill position guy in this league. What he does is a, is a blocker, what he does down the middle of the field and in the prime of his career, and when he's healthy, he's just an absolute beast and monster to try to defend. And that's what Seattle's been fortunate with over the last couple of seasons, it's if I'm not mistaken. has been up when they faced him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or they've had a backup quarterback when they faced him. And, and that, you know, Nick Mullins has had his career days against Seattle. Oh. But, you know, uh, C.J. Beathard and Nick Mullins and... Those guys are not Jimmy Garoppolo, and even Jimmy Garoppolo, when they faced him last year, was a shell of, of who he was. So, yeah, they've been forced, fortunate to either get Kittle nicked up or a backup quarterback many times. You get those guys fully healthy, man. That guy is just hes just an absolute beast and, and monster. And you play base defense, and all of a sudden you got Daryl Taylor that's got to try to get into space and cover him at times, or Bobby Wagner still, or Jordan Brooks learning to still do that, Jamal Adams. That's still that's still a real matchup challenge, in my opinion. I'm so glad that I stole that pick away from you the last so, time. Yeah, you were so mean to do that. <laughs> Take care of your guests. Give them a little love. No, I need help. I need help. I need to win. <laughs> I wanted to have the because I didn't know who I was going to think about after picking George Kittle. We were doing a little draft of NFC West, the guys that you would want to take off of teams that are not the Seattle Seahawks. I'm curious as to uh, which of the Rams' weapons is going to be best against Seattle because. You know, you mentioned some of those tight ends and the success that they have over the middle of the field. It was yeah. always either Tyler Higby or Gerald Everett. And then always it yeah. seems like Robert Woods, too, was wide open over the middle. And I wonder if L.A., now that they have Matt Stafford, tries to attack different parts of the field or if they're going to just keep on doing the same thing that seems to work very well against Seattle when L.A. takes them on. Well, the one thing they did not have, and I think I called three Rams games last year, they just did not have a home run hitter. Robert Woods and Cooper Cup are amazing players and, and both got paid huge money and extensions because of everything they do in their run game, their pass protectors, Paul. I remember putting a little bit together for our production that uh, we tried to fit in. Robert Woods was at, at times a pulling guard in their system. Like he would get out in front and pull up. He'd have to be a fullback and on an ISO play, go down and block either a linebacker or a safety. He's obviously a jet sweeper and a screener and a slot guy. He had to play outside. I mean, all of the roles that those guys do. And I remember talking in our in our broadcast with Greg Jennings. I remember talking to him about that. I'm like, Greg, how many receivers would be willing to do, especially after getting paid? He's like, uh, yeah, not many, not many. Don't, don't want to do that. Getting a bunch and, and block ends, crack back and block safeties and all the things those guys do, but they're not home run hitters, right? They're not DK Metcalf. They're not going to run by you 40, 50 yards down the field. And I think that's the element through the draft the last couple years with young guys and certainly with Stafford that Sean McVay needs to and wants to bring to that system. So that's not a particular player, you know, to your question of an individual, but from a team mindset, a scheme mindset, that will absolutely be part of the equation in facing the, the Rams with the Stafford that you did not get with Goff in the previous talent outside. Yeah, 2-2 Atwell fast, Deshaun yes. Jackson fast. We'll, we'll see. Brock, I always appreciate you joining me, and uh, we'll talk to you again on Thursday, man. You got it, man. Is is uh, is our boy back from the islands on Thursday? Oh, he's just... still there, man. He's he's having himself quite the time. Jeez. So he's there all week, huh? So you yeah, just hold, you're holding it down, man. Doing yeah, great. Michael Bumpus will be in with me on Thursday, so it'll be a two team effort. Gotcha. All right, buddy. We'll look forward to it. Sounds great. Thanks, See you, bud.